Colossians uh, chapter 1. Um, I, I want to pick up in verse 13. That's where we left off last time. We're going to focus more on verses 15 through 17. But Paul is writing to them, and remember he started off by just saying, hey, don't forget, God changed me. I am an apostle by the will of God. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by what God's done. So in other words, God changed me. He got a hold of me on the road to Damascus, and he saved me, but he also called me to service. He called me to be about the mission. So he said, God changed me. And then he looked at the church and he said, but God's changed you as well. And he called them saints, which means the set apart ones, the holy ones. He said, God has changed you as well. And God is in the changing business. And he gave gratitude then here in the first chapter of Colossians. He gave gratitude to God for all that he had done. And then he launched into a prayer for them. And he, and he prayed that God would bless them with wisdom and that he would bless them in their walk. He wanted them to achieve great things for the kingdom. And he was praying for them because he loved the church. And then he makes this transition. It is a theologically rich transition, but it is a transition. Because as he's giving thanks to the Father, you'll see that in verse 12, he begins to speak more about how the Father has worked in the Son and how the Son is the image of the Father. You see a transition that is made here. Let, let's look in verse 13, for example. He speaks more of the Father here in saying, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So it is a theologically rich transition, those two verses, because it says to us that the Father has released us from darkness. Praise be to God. That he gave us this release from sin. He gave us a release from uh, our darkened eyes. He has allowed us to see what God really has done for us through the Son that he has allowed us to see the forgiveness and the redemption that has come through Jesus himself. And then in verse 15, and that's where I want us to focus tonight, he begins this exaltation of Jesus. He begins telling us how preeminent, how supreme, how superior Jesus is to anything and everything else. Some people say this begins a hymn or a poem that was well known in the churches and that Paul crafted together and brought here to the letter to remind us of how, who Jesus is. But regardless, you begin to see the supremacy and the preeminence of who Jesus is over creation, over the church, and over all of the world itself. And that's what I want to focus in the next few Sunday nights. I wished I, could, I wished I could just keep you here for a couple of hours or so and kind of work through this all. But I think it necessary that we just break it apart in these next three Sunday nights. Because it's important for you to see that he is over creation. It's important for you to see that he's the head of the church. It's important for you to see that he is the reconciler of all things of the world. And that's how you'll begin to see it broken down for us as Paul's writing. Oh, remember Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, and they've had issues. They have had people come in and try to teach their own thing. And a lot of people are just, 
a lot of the church, they're just accepting anything and everything. It's a very eclectic type of understanding. Like they'll take a little bit of this and they'll take a little bit of that and they'll put it into the hat and everything seems to be good to them and they'll accept it all. Sounds like a few churches that we might know today, right? Just whatever. They'll take a little bit of the truth of Christianity, but then they'll add a little bit of another philosophy and another part of another philosophy. And before you know it, they've got this eclectic looking doctrine and, and, and belief. So what is Paul doing here? He's basically saying, hey, just as I'm writing this letter and we start out, we need to all remember who Christ is. Because if you are battling any type of false teaching, if you are battling any type of um, opponent who has come against the kingdom, it's probably just best to start with who Christ is. Because when you get the Christ component right, you begin to get the other things right in life. So here Paul begins with Christ. He says, I want you to understand. I want you to get a good glimpse of him. I want you to see who he really is. Verse 15, he, and again, he's transitioned now to the son. He's talking about Jesus. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the one, obviously, that is the creator of everything that we know. He says he's the image of the invisible God. Think of this just a moment. John told us that no one has seen God, right? He writes that, he says, no one's really seen God. But then that same evangelist will write and he will record the words of Jesus, basically reminding us that if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father, right? He says, you have seen the visible expression of the Father through me. So how, how can John reconcile this? Because in one hand, he said, no one has seen God. The other hand, he says, well, well you, you've seen God when you've seen Christ, when Jesus is given to us as the image of God, as the expression of God, we understand that he is the one who represents the Father. He is the one who represents the Godhead. And yet none of us have ever seen the Father, right? We could say no one's seen God, no one has seen the Father. But you've seen Jesus. So you've seen the image. You, you've seen the expression of the Father. You have seen who God is in some sense because you have seen Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He bears the likeness of the Father. Now on Wednesday nights, we've talked a lot about bearing the likeness of the family. We've worked through the first John and we talked about if you're part of the family, you're probably gonna look like the family, you're right, in some ways. Uh, I heard somebody uh, saying earlier, uh, Reggie, who do you look like, your daddy or your mama? because they didn't see my dad or mama. If you saw my dad this morning, you would know that I look kind of like my dad. I still have a little more hair than he does, but I'm not sure that's going to last very long. I told you some weeks ago that the more I look in the mirror, the more I realize how much I look like my dad. 
And there's some similarities that are there. I bear the image of the Bridges family. Jesus bore the image of the Father. But he not only bore the image of the Father, according to what we see here, even his creative ability, it says the firstborn over all creation, that all things were created by him. He bore the image of the Father. He, he was the image of God himself, but he was also God. This, this is what's mind-boggling, right? And so hard for people to believe. Like he's the image of the Father, and yet he is also in essence and substance God. He is divine because he's the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And right now, here's Paul who was steeped in Jewish tradition, who was steeped in Jewish education. If you read anything about Paul, he, he was on his way up in the Jewish faith. At any moment, at any moment, he would have been on that council, and obviously he already had the trust and the faith of the council as he was going to persecute believers. He, he was on his way up. You could have never, ever said that he would claim Jesus to be God because he believed right in one God, just, just as we do. And yet here, he's writing a letter after he's been transformed by Jesus, and he's saying, oh, this Jesus, yes. He is bearing the image, but he's also God because he's the creator. Now, it is so mind-boggling for us to try to work through, but this is an indication, once again, of that Trinitarian relationship between God the Father and God the Son, just as you've seen Paul express it in the prayer and now in the transition, that there are two different persons of the Godhead. They look alike. They're in substance together. There's one God, and yet they're separate, distinct persons. I think we need to, again, reaffirm our Trinitarian position that there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, but three persons. And just because one looks like the other does not mean, uh, does not mean that one is just revealing the other. There's this teaching in certain churches today that God just appeared to be the Father in the Old Testament. He appeared to be the Son in the New Testament. He appears to be the Holy Spirit now in the church age. He just appears that way. He just, just seems to be. But he, he's not really distinct. You don't have distinct persons. It's just God is just revealing himself. And sometimes we have, I think, lent credence to that by the way we discuss the Trinity and give the analogies. There is no good analogy of the Trinity. You cannot, listen, I know we try to teach our children sometimes with the analogies and all that, but you cannot capture a Trinitarian majestic awesome God with an egg. You cannot. You cannot capture it with an apple. You cannot describe, what do you say? Well, you know, it's like, well, you got the, you got the white of the egg and, and you got the yolk and all, yeah, and all that. I mean, it's all the egg, but you got different. That's, you cannot do that, okay? I've just decided that analogies of the Trinity like that are not even worth trying to go down and describe. I, I just don't think we ought to anymore. That, that old uh, functional way of describing uh, God, well, you know, it's like, like me, I'm a, I'm a father, 
I'm a son and I'm a husband. So it's one, but I have different roles, right? I'm all those different roles. They're not just playing different roles. There is God the Father. He is a person. There's God the Son. He is a person. There's God the Holy Spirit. He is a person. Three distinct persons, yet one God. Yes, it blows our mind. But shouldn't your God blow your mind? If you can figure out your God, then you have, you need another God. If you can figure him out, if he's that easy to kind of comprehend, you need a God and I need a God that is so majestic and so different, so holy, so unique that we, he just blows everything about our minds and comprehension. It's like I said this morning that Francis Chan said, we don't have to exaggerate our God. You don't have to exaggerate him because he's greater than any of your exaggerations would be. Here you have the Father and the Son, and it says here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, but through him or by him all things were created. Let me just address this. Firstborn of all creation does not mean that Jesus was a created being. Unfortunately, some religions will look at that and they'll, they'll say, oh, well, see, Jesus, he's just, the, he's just the first created thing. No, he was not. He existed before all of creation itself. And he was God. He was the creator. Verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Everything. Still the idea of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You could translate it based on this passage. In the beginning, Christ created the heavens and the earth. And again, that would seem to challenge our mental capacity, doesn't it? Because too often we think of Jesus just beginning or uh, beginning to exist in the birth in Bethlehem. That's not where he began. Jesus existed for all time, from all eternity, and will exist for all eternity onward. He was the creator. So when he came to earth, and he took on this job, this career of carpentry, he already knew how to put things together. The carpenter of Nazareth had been trained by hanging the stars in the sky, of placing the sun and the moon, of framing and fashion, fashioning Adam himself, human. Well, he, he, he already knew the great carpenter did because he had been at work in creation. He created all things, all things. And just, and Paul says, just so you don't misunderstand those things that are visible and invisible. Just, just so you don't, so you don't miss it here that he created everything. I just want you to know that which is visible and invisible, which again would mean everything rather redundant, but just reminding you that Jesus made it. And then he says, whether there be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, 
Now, it's kind of hard to, to figure out exactly what all those thrones and dominions, principalities, and powers would be. We, we say, again, everything and anything. Some here actually see this as talking about how he created all of the categories of angels. And the reason they do that is you'll read later on in this letter that some of the people are worshiping angels. There's an angelic worship that's taking place. And sometimes this idea of thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers will speak about the different categories or rankings of the angels. I don't know if that's for sure, if that's exactly what it is, but I will say this. Jesus created everything, even the angels themselves. And thus, he is to be preeminent and supreme over everything because he's the creator, right? If he's the creator, then he deserves all preeminence and supremacy ascribed to him. The writer of Hebrews will echo this. I wanted to read this to you. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Very similar terminology. He said, this is the one who made the worlds. Who, being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. We'll talk more about the angels later, but I mean, angels, I mean, that, that's an amazing kind of idea, concept to think about a heavenly messenger, a messenger that, I mean, tonight, if you wake up and you see an angel at the foot of your bed, it will get your attention, right? Yeah. It will. Absolutely. Because you think of them in some type of majestic term as well, and because they're messengers of God. Uh, obviously, even John, there's a sense of where, like, he sees a messenger, and he, he bows down to worship, and he's like, and the angel's like, no, 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 don't, don't do that, right? There's only one who is worthy of our worship, because there is one who is the creator of the angels, that being Jesus. So Jesus is the creator of everything. He created everything that is visible or invisible. That affects our worldview about just about everything when we think of Jesus being the creator. But also, just as we move on, I, I wanted to point out Christ not only is the creator of everything, but he is the sustainer of everything. I probably should just have kind of rested here even more. What a comfort this is for me. Verse 17 said, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So he created everything, and he holds everything together. That's pretty important to me, that our creator is still in charge. 
and that all of creation is held together by him. Everything consists with him. He's personally involved. I believe that about our God. There was this, um, I think, false teaching that came about uh, some years ago in the age of enlightenment, the age of reason. Some of you have taken American history. Some of you have taken American literature. You would often talk about these people called deists. I never forget. I, every American history class and every American lit class I had, we talked more about deists than anything else. You know, I was so ready to check out of those classes. I mean, I, I was like, when I walked in my American Lit class at Blue Mountain, I started to say, I can define right now what a deist is. And if you just give me an, a B, I'd probably walk out of here now, all right? A deist, it was the idea that there is a God, but he's an impersonal God. He's not really involved with everybody. And as a matter of fact, when he created the world, he just... What's the old analogy, the old uh, image? that he, He'd wind up a clock, and then he would just leave it, you know, just to kind of wind down. So it was the idea of, you know, he just, he created everything, and then he just stepped back. That is not the concept of a biblical God. Not the concept of the God I have that I see in Scripture. The God we have in Scripture is still intimately involved in the lives of, this, of His people and certainly the life of this world. And He is sovereign over all. And He holds all things together. How incredibly comforting is that? I remember being on the campus of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I think I was going into my second class. It was a class that Dr. Argel Smith was teaching that day. And we began to hear something about planes crashing into the World Trade Centers. And they're still trying to figure it out, whether it was an accident or what was what was really going on? Well, soon uh, we began to realize that it was something more than an accident. And they canceled the classes. People went to the chapel. That day, Argel Smith was going to preach. And I don't know what he was going to preach. I'm sure he had a message prepared. But he didn't use that message that day. He came to our people and he turned to Colossians chapter 1. And he read verse 16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. I needed to hear God was still in charge. I needed to hear that God was still holding the world together. Because everything seemed to be changing. When I drove back across Lake Pontchartrain, not long after that, 
they were still trying to figure out whether there were other planes in the air and where they were headed. And I remember the fear. I'll just be honest. The fear that I had, even as we were driving over Pontchartrain, I, I said, I have got to get back to Picayune quickly. I, 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 and I know this sounds, but, but I was serious. I was like, if I get to Pine Grove, nobody will ever find me there. You know, <laughs> they're not coming after me in Pine Grove. I've got to get to Pine Grove. I get there, I'm safe. I don't want to be in New Orleans. I don't want to be in the metropolis. I don't want to be anywhere where there are a lot of people and things are happening. I just, I want to get out to the country and I will be content to stay there the rest of my life. I never want to leave again. But even as that fear had me, I was remembering these words. And in him, all things consist. And in him, all things consist. He's got this. He's holding it together. He created it. And if he's got the power to create it, he's got the power to sustain it. And you and I need to hear that in our lives. Because it may not be a 9-11 worldwide event, but it might be a 9-11 event for your life. It might be with your family might be in your relationships. It might be when that doctor looks at you and he says, you know what? It's cancer. It's in that point that I want to point, I want to remind you of this scripture. And in him, all things consist. He will keep you. You will stick together. It may seem like the world's coming apart. No, 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 no. He still has this world held together. We can be confident of who he is. He is the sustainer. Oh. We, could, we, could just, we could just settle there, couldn't we? But let me give you this last he is not only the creator and he's not only the sustainer of creation. He is the goal of creation itself. He's the goal. He's the purpose. He's the aim. Everything is moving toward him. How do I know that? All things were created through him and for him. All creation is for him. All of it. When it's all said and done, when everything comes out, it is all for Jesus. It's the reason we should worship him because he's the creator, the sustainer. It drives us to worship the purpose. All of creation should worship him and all of creation. Even, even when we do not do what we should do, the very rocks and stones cry out of his majesty and his beauty. All of creation is moving toward a world filled with his glory. I remember sitting in my high school Bible class and Mr. Covington talking about Numbers 1421, talking about the goal of the goal of this life, the goal of our world, the goal of creation. 
Numbers 14, 21. But truly, Moses said, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's Moses. You would think very locally minded, at least nationally minded with Israel. And here he says, there's coming a day when all of the world itself will be filled with the glory of our Lord. All of creation, because all of it is moving toward him. All of creation has been made for him. You've heard me say, and I continue to say that our God is too big to have just the praise of one nation. He deserves the praise of all nations. Every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. And at one point, at some time, that will occur. Willing, listen, willingly or unwillingly, it will occur that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Because he is the creator. He has the claim over us. He has the claim over all of humanity. He has claim over creation. And one day when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he has that claim because he is the Lord. He is the one who created and sustained all of creation itself. So I want to leave you with that image. There are two or three images that really remind us of that in Revelation, but I want to leave you with Revelation 21, verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means entered it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. When I get to Revelation, I see exactly what Moses talked about many, 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 many years before. A world that is filled with his glory. No need for sun, no need for moon. The glory of God itself will illuminate that world. We're moving toward it. We need to recognize that he is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is our very aim and purpose. He is the one that deserves all of our worship. He deserves all the glory. May we be those people who give him his rightful place now as we worship him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. How always rich it is. And I pray, Lord, that even tonight in this place, you would take your scripture, you would 
Lord, bore it down into our lives. And when we walk out of here, even some of us who feel like our personal 9-11s have come, God, I pray that you would remind us that you still are sustaining and holding your creation. And God, we're looking forward to a world that's filled with your glory. Until you consummate your victory, I pray that we would be faithful in giving you the rightful place and the rightful glory you deserve. And with my brothers and sisters in this place, I offer the prayer of John as I, as I ask, as I beg, even so, come Lord Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?